Let's pray together. Father, our prayer is that you would be everything to us. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to so experience your mercy and love and splendor and glory and worth that we would recognize that you're worthy of everything that we have. You're worthy of our best efforts, our best gifts, the first fruits of who we are. And Lord, I pray that as we respond to you in this way, that we would also respond with a, a sincere concern for everyone around us, that we would actually love our neighbors as ourselves. We pray that you'd do it, Lord, through your word, that you'd make us those who love you and who love our neighbors, those who know you because of what Christ has done for us. We ask it in his name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 4, and as you turn there, uh, I want to tell you about this, this book that I've, I've been listening to. Uh, D'Amico recommended this book. It's, it's called Hunting Eichmann. It's about the Israeli attempt to find and capture and bring to justice a man named Adolf Eichmann, who had been a high-ranking Nazi uh, SS um, officer over the final solution. He was charged with, with putting into practice the extermination of the Jews of Europe. This guy, he was, he was the bureaucrat who organized the transfer of the Jews from their homes, from the ghettos, to the camps, and then he was over there uh, being gassed, and then there being... Uh, either buried in mass graves or uh, burned, cremated. And uh, after World War II ended, um, he escaped. He, he was actually apprehended by the Americans. He was in an American prisoner of war camp, but the Americans didn't know who he was. He had changed his name and tried to burn off the tattoo from his arm. And he escaped from the prison camp, and then eventually he was actually helped by some people who shouldn't have helped him. But he made his way to Argentina, and it wasn't until 1960 that he was finally identified and located. And the, the Argentinian, Argentinian government had actually given him a passport. They had given him papers. So they knew who he was, and they allowed him to have safe harbor in their country. And this team of Israelis um, went to Argentina, uh, identified him conclusively, and then abducted him and took him back to uh, to Israel, where he stood trial, and he was convicted of his crimes. He confessed to everything, that he had done these things, um, and they, they executed him. But when they apprehended him, uh, even as his hands trembled, even as he was terrified, he thought that they were going to kill him immediately. He, didn't, he, didn't think, he did not believe that the Jews were going to take him back to Israel and give him a fair trial. So even as he was terrified, he began to to prepare this defense. And it was a defense that showed that he had actually no remorse over what he had done. I mean, some of the people who, had, who were part of the team that, that captured him 
Some of those people had watched their family members beaten to death by the Nazis. They had, they had seen members of their family taken away to the gas chambers. They, and they had seen uh, Adolf Eichmann in person as he was exercising this power of life and death over members of their own family. And this is what he said. I was only following orders. I was only following orders. I am not responsible. I was only following orders. An absolutely callous disregard for how his own actions affected other people. No concern for the innocence that he ordered to execution. Old elderly people, young children, all of them exterminated. And all he could say was, it was not my responsibility. I was only following orders. As we look at, at Genesis 4 today, we're going to see a similar response from Cain. And, and what we see here in, in this chapter, what we see can be boiled down, I think, to this statement. What you offer to God reveals your heart toward him. What you offer to God reveals your heart toward God. And then with that, the other side of that is how you regard God is going to be reflected in how you treat other people. So, so the, this, this whole chapter is really about the two great commandments. It's about loving God and loving your neighbor. This is an amazing chapter of the Bible. I mean, we've, we've looked at, at the creation of the world in Genesis 1, the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2, and then uh, the introduction of sin and death in, into the world in Genesis 3. And here in Genesis 4, it's like right away we start seeing what the world has become now that sin and death have come into the world. And, and the way that, the, the literary way that this chapter is structured is really beautiful. It's, it's, it's amazing what Moses has done. So I just want to briefly draw your attention to the structure of the passage, and then we'll come back and work our way through it. So if you, if you look at, at Genesis 4 and just sort of scan your eyes over verses 1 through 5, what you've got there is, we could say this is about procreation. Adam knew his wife Eve. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. And then it's about worship. There um, we read in verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought an offering and Abel also brought uh, offerings to the Lord. So you get procreation and worship. And in a way, it's like Genesis 1.28 being enacted. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion, subdue the earth and have dominion over it. And, and it's like Cain and Abel are engaged in that process. One of them is a worker of the, of the ground and the other is a keeper of sheep. Um, Adam was to work and keep the garden. These are the terms that we're going to see used here. So we get procreation and then we get worship. And then in verses 6 through uh, 16, we get murder. Cain's murder of Abel. And if you, if you, if you just sort of put those two things side by side, you, you get people being fruitful and multiplying and worshiping the Lord, and then you get on the other side somebody committing murder. And then in verses 17 through 24, look at, look at how verse 17 starts. Cain knew his wife. For one, Adam knew his wife. Uh, verse 6, the Lord said to Cain. So uh, the, 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 divide, the divider for verses 6 through 16, the introductory thing is, is the Lord speaking. And then verse 17 is a lot like verse 1. Cain knew his wife. And what we see from Cain's line, 
culminates in murder. Verse 23, I've killed a man, Lamech says, for wounding me, a young man for striking me. So in a way, in verses 17 through 24, you get murder again. And then in verses 25 and 26, verse 25 is a lot like verse 1. Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Seth. And then Cain and Abel are named just as they were named in verses 1 through 5. And then we get worship in verse 26. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So the chapter opens and closes with um, Adam and Eve having babies and with, with people worshiping. Cain, and Cain uh, really Abel, is the one who's worshiping. And then in Seth's day, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And in between, we've got two stories that deal with murder. And, and it, really, it really forces the issue, I think, that you are either going to be about God's purposes, and you are either going to be about loving and worshiping God, and then looking to be your brother's keeper, or you're going to be doing the opposite. So let's walk through this, this passage together now, and, and we'll look at the procreation and the worship in Genesis 4, 1 through 5 together. Look with me at Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. And so in spite of the fact that, that uh, God's words of judgment in Genesis 3.16 are going to make uh, procreation difficult and painful, in, in spite of the fact that the conception is going to be uh, difficult, um, there, there's life that's coming. She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And I, it, I think that that response is really a response to Genesis 3.15. The Lord saying to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed, serpent, and her seed. And it seems to me that the man and the woman are looking for the seed of the woman. So she, she sees the birth of this this male child, and she thinks, this is going to be the seed of the woman. Maybe he will be the one who will bruise the serpent's head. And then verse 2, and again she bore his brother Abel. And then it continues. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep. And I, I mentioned a moment ago that that word keeper is the same word used in Genesis 2.15, that the man was to work and keep the garden, and then we read that Cain was a worker of the ground. So it's, it's as though Cain and Abel have divided the labor that Adam was charged to do in Genesis 2.15, and, and Abel is taking the keeping side of things, the shepherding side of things, keeping a flock of, of sheep, likely, and then uh, Cain is working the ground. And in some ways, those two activities are also uh, working out what we saw in Genesis 1.28, uh, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, work the ground, and have dominion over the animals, keep the animals. So Genesis 128 and Genesis 215, uh, I think, are, are exercising influence over the way that Moses is describing what Cain and Abel are doing here. And then verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. I want to invite you to compare and contrast the offerings brought by Cain and Abel. And, and in this comparison and contrast, I fully admit that I'm informed by what's going to happen in the rest of the chapter. In what's going to happen in the rest of the chapter, we get 
evidence that what I'm about to tell you about this offering is, I think, spot on. This is, ex- this is exactly what's going on in the offering. Look at, look at how Cain's offering is described. Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And, and there's no statement there that he bought, brought something like the first fruits of the ground. There's no description that he brought the best of what he had to the Lord. And compare that to verse 4. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, again, I'm, I'm informed by the rest of the Pentateuch. In the rest of the Pentateuch, the Israelites are explicitly instructed to bring the first fruits and the firstborn of the flock, and they're to offer to the Lord the fat portions. So, yes, later, in, yet later we're told this is, the, this is the good stuff. This is what the Lord wants, what Abel has offered. And, and then, by implication, Cain has not offered what the Lord wants. Cain... Now, I want to extrapolate from this and make a suggestion to you about why Cain has not brought what the Lord wants, again, informed by the rest of the passage. I want to suggest to you that Abel, his attitude is, God is what's most important to me. God is what's most important to me, and so I want to give to God the best that I have. The the first fruit, the firstborn of my flock, the fat portions I mean, again, I may have mentioned this in an earlier sermon, but the Greeks, they, the Greeks perceived that they needed to offer sacrifices to their gods, but they didn't want to be too sacrificial. So their rationale was that the gods, the gods don't like the meat. The gods don't like the fat. The gods don't like the parts of the animals that people benefit from. The gods want the gristle. They like the tendons. They like the stuff that's useless to us and that doesn't provide us with feasts. And so that's what the Greeks claimed that their gods wanted, and so that's what they offered to their gods, the the parts that don't benefit people. But Abel's heart is, I want to give God the best that I have. And it it seems to me that Cain's heart, by contrast, is, well, I know I've got to make a sacrifice. Really wish I didn't have to make this sacrifice. Really don't want to make this sacrifice. So let me just get some of the fruit of the ground Maybe I can choose some parts that have gone bad, and I can bring that, and I really, really don't even like being here right now. Would like to be doing what I want to be doing, and that's what he brings to the Lord. And and I think this is why the Lord responds the way that he does. Look at the end of verse 4. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. The Lord... The Lord wants to be treated like he is what is most important. The Lord wants you to respond to him like there is nothing better than him. Like you have no treasure greater than him. Like you are confident that if I do offer to him a sacrificial gift, he will more than repay. The the Lord wants us to believe what Proverbs 3 says when Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 says, offer to the Lord your wealth and he will make your vats brim over with new wine and your barns will be filled with plenty. The Lord wants us to be confident 
If I give sacrificially, he will meet all my needs. He is more than capable to meet my needs. That's what the Lord wants. And this is why, there in verse 4, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Verse 5, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. If, if you're just here because you think, well, I've got I've to go there, you shouldn't be under any illusions. If you come like Cain comes, you do not please God. You don't make your life better. You might check some box. You might make somebody, some human in your life, kind of okay, happy. But really what they want, if they're a believer, is what God wants. They want you to give yourself completely to God. And if you don't give yourself completely to God, God, God has no regard for Cain and his offering. And then look at how Cain responds in verse 5. So Cain was very angry. Now you think about this. God has given to Cain life and breath and everything that he has. Cain is a human being by God's grace and mercy. Cain has intelligence. He has a capable body. He has eyes that see. He has a nose that smells and ears that hear. Cain has... Cain has this glorious gift of this mystery that we call life. He has the opportunity to live before God, and he's mad. He's angry when God is not pleased with him. I think what this shows us is that what is most important in Cain's heart and mind is Cain. That's what's most important to Cain. And Cain offered that sacrifice, and God should have liked it. Whether it was his best or not, I think that's Cain's response. I mean, if you're, if you're really trying to please someone and you bring a gift and they don't like the gift, if you love that person, you're probably going to say, okay, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really hit a home run with that gift. Let me back this up. Let me try to figure out what it is that would please you and... Let me offer to you a gift that would please you. That's, I think that's how Cain should respond. When, when the Lord has no regard for his offering, Cain's response should be, Lord, what is it that you would like for me to bring? What is it? And, and if you'll help me understand what you would like for me to bring, that's what I want to bring. Cain's got no, no place for that because, because what's important to Cain is not God. What's important to Cain is Cain. Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And now, in verses 6 and following, verses 6 through 16, we see Cain's interaction with the Lord that's really going to culminate in his murder of his brother. This is such an interesting... The way that Moses opens this verse, the Lord said to Cain... You know, the Lord's done some speaking through, through these chapters, hasn't he? In chapter 1, when the Lord said, it happened. And then in chapter 3, uh, the Lord God said to the serpent, having, having interacted with Adam and Eve, the Lord spoke to them. And now, in the same way that, that after Adam sinned, it was the Lord who called to him, Adam, where are you? So now... The Lord encounters Cain. The Lord said to Cain, 
And remember how the Lord had interacted with Adam and Eve. He had asked them questions. This is what the Lord's going to do with Cain. Why are you angry? Cain, you brought me a gift that wasn't your best. You brought me a gift that wasn't pleasing to me. Why does this anger you? Do you want to reflect on your attitude? Do you want to reflect on your heart? Do you want to consider the possibility of repentance? Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? And then it's like the Lord says, look, Cain, here's your path. Here's, here's the path. If, if you want to please me, here's the path. He says, if you do well, there in verse 7, will you not be accepted? Cain, we, we all know what a sacrifice looks like. If you'll make a good sacrifice, won't it be accepted? Cain, you need to turn away from this, this worthless sacrifice. You need to turn away from viewing this as a duty that you begrudge the fact that you have to do and do well. And if you do well, you'll be accepted. If you do not do well, he goes on to say in verse 7, sin is crouching at your door, at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. The Lord is putting the two ways before Cain. You can do well and you can be accepted before me. Or you can be mastered by sin, and it wants you, Cain, but you must rule over it. And we see where Cain goes. We see how he responds. Uh, before, before we move on from here, though, let me just invite you to consider what the Lord says there in verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? I, I hope you hear the Lord's generosity in those words. I hope you hear, this is what you ought to hear. You ought to hear the Lord saying in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, that he is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. A God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. It's like the Lord is saying to Cain, Cain, I'm ready to be merciful to you. You blew it. That's a bad sacrifice. But if you'll turn away from that approach and do the right thing, I'll accept you, Cain. And you'll have my favor. And I will sing over you in love. And I will have regard for your sacrifice in the same way that I have regard for your brother's sacrifice. This will be great, Cain. If you'll do well, you'll be accepted. And I want to say to everybody here this morning, if you do well, you will be accepted. Now, don't misunderstand me. Doing well doesn't mean you need to meet some external standard. You need to attain some perfect obedience to the law. No, we don't earn our, our righteousness before God. What we do is we come to God and we say, God, I believe that you're good. God, I believe that you're merciful. I believe that you're the kind of God that makes provision for my sin. So I'm going to trust you and I'm going to give everything that I am to you. And I'm going to believe that you are a good and loving and merciful and forgiving God who del delights to save those who turn from their sin and trust in you. If you do well, if you, that's doing well. If you do well, you will be accepted. Um, Genesis 4.8 shows us Cain enacting the opposite of Genesis 1.28. Genesis 1.28, the Lord says to his image bearers, 
He's made the man and the woman in his own image and likeness. They reflect his character to creation. And he says, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to fill all creation with who I am. Make it so that the glory, my glory covers the dry lands as the waters cover the seas. And the polar opposite of that activity is to say, I'm not going to enact God's character. I'm going to do the opposite of God's character. And then I'm going to kill people. So I'm not only not going to live out God's character myself, I'm going to do the opposite of being fruitful and multiplying. I'm going to diminish the human population. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. It's a shocking statement. And if you can imagine in your, in your mind the force it would take to end a human life, this is what Cain has done. We're not told how he struck him, whether it was with a, a tool or a rock. or We're not told what he did. But Cain worked himself into such a vicious frenzy that he, he attacked his own brother, and murdered him. And before we read on, we should, be, we should have no illusions about what we're about to read. Cain knows exactly where he left Abel. Cain knows exactly where Abel is. He knows exactly what has happened to Abel. And I think that just like Adolf Eichmann, who the reason he feared the Jews were going to kill him is because he knew what he had done. The reason his hands trembled when they apprehended him is because he knew, he boasted at one point, that he was going to leap into hell with five million Jews on his conscience. He knew he was responsible for that many deaths, deaths or more. And Cain knows. And we know. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, this question is so much like the way the Lord engages Cain after his sin is so much like the way the Lord engaged Adam after his son, sin. You remember the Lord says to Adam, where are you? Look at what the Lord says to Cain here in verse 9. Where is Abel, your brother? Cain knows exactly where Abel is. He said, I do not know. Oh, yes, he does. He most certainly does. Am I my brother's keeper? Why, yes, Cain. That's exactly what you're supposed to be. Cain has not enacted God's character. Cain has not acted on God's purpose. Cain, in his offering, evidenced no concern for God. And the outworking of that is that Cain is now evidencing no concern for Abel. Cain, in fact, Cain is so unconcerned for Abel that Cain's offense that God was not pleased with his offering has led to Cain deciding Abel doesn't get to go on living. 
No concern for Abel's health. No concern for Abel's ability to go on carrying out God's purpose. No concern for Abel's ability to pursue his his hopes and dreams. And no remorse. No remorse. No repentance. No care. No love. No love for Abel. No love for God. You remember in chapter 3, after the Lord said to Adam, where are you? And then he has that interaction with Adam. And Adam says, well, the woman that you put here. Then the Lord says to the woman, he says, what is this that you have done? Look at what the Lord now says to Cain here in chapter 4, verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? It's the same question. And I think the Lord is mercifully, kindly, patiently calling out to Cain. Where is Abel? What have you done? Cain, this is a great opportunity for you to repent. This is a great opportunity for you to confess. This is a great opportunity for you to see how merciful I'm ready to be. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. It's as though God's holy creation has been defiled by the blood of Cain's sin. And then when Cain refuses all of these opportunities, when he, when he enacts the opposite of God's purpose, God identifies Cain with the serpent. The Lord had said to the serpent in Genesis 3.14, Cursed are you. And now the Lord says to Cain in verse 11 of Genesis 4, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So by means of this, of this identification, by means of the reuse of this phrase, you are cursed, Moses is showing us that the seed of the serpent, we're, we're, not, we're not just dealing with an antipathy that human beings feel for snakes, No, the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman is an enmity between different kinds of people. One group of people that's ready to say, we want to give the best of what we are to God. We we want to respond to the Lord with worship and we want to love other people. And then another group of people that says, God is an imposition upon my consciousness. I will have nothing to do with him. And I hate people. And I will lie about what I have done. So we see Moses teaching us, I think, how to understand the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And then in that passage that we read earlier uh, in the service, Ezekiel 28, uh, what we see there, it seems to me, is the prophet Ezekiel addressing a human king, but using satanic imagery to describe that human king. And so the king of Tyre was not in Eden, the garden of God, but Satan was... And the king of Tyre was not a guardian cherub who was adorned with all of these holy stones, but apparently his father, the devil, was. And then across the Bible, this is the way that, I mean, I think this is why John the Baptist sees the Pharisees coming out to him and he says, you brood of vipers. It's why Jesus says to his opponents in Jerusalem, you are of your father, the devil. And then we read 1 John 3 earlier in the service. So the Lord says to Cain, now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, 
it shall no longer yield to you its strength. What the Lord does to Cain here is just like what the Lord did to Adam and Eve. Adam was to work and keep the ground. After his sin, the ground was cursed. Eve was to be fruitful and multiply with the man and help the man. Well, childbearing is made painful and difficult. And, and her, she no longer desires to help. She wants to do for the man what sin wants to do for Cain. Control. Dictate. And, and Cain, he's a worker of the ground, but because of his sin, his task is made more difficult. The, the ground will no longer yield its strength. Sin always makes our lives harder. Sin always makes what God has called us to do harder to accomplish. And then the Lord tells him, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. It's as though the Lord is saying, you're going to be restless. You're going to have no home. You can try to build your city, Cain, but you'll have no peace until you're willing to repent of your sin and seek mercy. And Cain responds the way that my kids sometimes respond. You know, you know when, when my kids, they do something wrong. And then there's going to be a consequence. And they don't like the consequence. They're not bothered about what they did wrong. They don't want to deal with this consequence. This is not fair. Not fair? Let's talk about the way you talk to your mother. Let's talk about the way you treated your sister or your brother. Let's talk about your actions, and then let's talk about what's fair. Look at what Cain says. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Uh, Cain, can we talk about Abel? Can we talk about how you ended his life? Can we talk about that, that quote-unquote sacrifice that you brought to me that revealed contempt for who I am? Fair, greater than you can bear. You know, it's interesting, the words that are, that are used here, the word that's, that's translated punishment is actually a term that could be translated iniquity. And then the, the language of bearing iniquity, in other parts of the Bible, when those two words are put together, sometimes it's... it's um, a reference to the bearing away or the removal of iniquity. And so the, there, there are translations. The Greek translation of the Hebrew actually translated this like a question. Can my sin be forgiven? Can my iniquity be forgiven? And I think the Bible's testimony is, yeah, murderers can be forgiven if they'll repent, if they'll trust, if they'll believe. But Cain, Cain's not ready for any of that. And so all he sees is, this is not fair. This is too hard for me. No concern for God, whose holiness he has defiled. No concern for Abel. Cain cares only about Cain. I think the application to this is obvious. I think, I think we should all cry out to the Lord, God, make me love you the way that I should. Lord, make me more concerned for you than I am about myself. Lord, make me ready to believe that whatever I give to you, whatever I sacrifice to your cause, you will more than repay. And then, Lord, help me not to be so self-centered. 
Make it where I don't think about myself. Make, make me somebody who is my brother's keeper. Lord, make me think about other people. Help me to be mindful about what other people are going through. Give me an imagination that considers what their reality is like. And then, and then give me the compassion that, that enables me to see how to love them well. If Adolf Eichmann had the ability to imagine what he had put people through, I don't think he would have said, I was just following orders. If he had had the compassion to recognize what he had done to other people, I think he would have felt remorse. But he, did, he didn't want anything to do with any of that. In verses 17 through 24, we see more murder. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. It's interesting how there's another Enoch that we're going to read about in chapter 5, verse 21. So it's like, it's like the line of descent from Cain, many of the names are going to parallel the line of descent from Seth that we'll read about in chapter 5. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. So it's like Cain is still resisting the punishment. You're going to be a restless one. No, I'm not. I'm going to build a city. And, and the Lord is, you can build your city. The Lord will give you no rest. Verse 18, to Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael. Methushael sounds a lot like Methuselah. It's very similar. And Methushael fathered Lamech. Lamech's the name of Noah's uh, father over in Genesis 5, 28. And then Lamech, verse 19, took two wives. And um, here I think we see the way that evil and abusiveness is just proliferating in Cain's life, in, in Cain's line. Cain was unrepentant, and those who descend from him are likewise unrepentant. The name of the one was Adah, the name of the other Zillah, Adah bore Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. This is different, apparently, from keeping of sheep. This guy is like a nomadic uh, herder of livestock, and he initiates that activity, it seems. And then in verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Um, what the Bible is doing here is saying, uh, don't, don't believe those stories about how some god gave music to people. Some god gave musical instruments to people. No, these are not gifts of the gods. These are not uh, things that Apollo or somebody has bestowed upon humanity. People came up with these musical instruments. Peep, in other words, this is um, uh, telling you that the myths are lies. Uh, it's demythologizing the origins of human culture. Verse 22, Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. This is, again, bronze and iron. This is not the gift of the gods. This guy, Tubal Cain, he came up with this stuff. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naama. And before I read on, I just want to note that um, this passage is clearly telling us about beginnings of things. And so sometimes people will say, well, the book of Genesis is really not trying to tell us about the origins of human culture. I mean, read these verses. Yes, it is. Yes, it most certainly is. It's telling us where these activities came from and, and how they got started among, among, among peoples. The book of Genesis is most certainly concerned with origins and beginnings. And then Lamech. What Lamech says here in verses 23 and 24 
should call to mind for us that whole passage that we looked at last week, Genesis 3, 14 through 19. Lamech said to his wives, it's like he's enacting the end of Genesis 3, 16. He shall rule over you, Lamech said to his wives. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. And then there's this, this boasting cruelty. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. There's no regard for life. There's no concern that he's boasting in murder. There's no concern for justice. This man's a killer, and he's boasting about it, and he's threatening his, his wives with the information. So the enmity between the seeds, I think we can see that here, Genesis 3.15. We can see that he's like his father, the devil, and we can see the way that the Lord has introduced death by his judgment. And then he continues in verse 24. What he says in verse 24 shows us that he doesn't understand what the Lord said to Cain. I, I passed over this. Back in verse 15, uh, when Cain says, my punishment is too hard for me to bear. Anybody that finds me will kill me. The Lord says to him, the, the, the New American Standard doesn't render this not so. The New American Standard renders it uh, therefore. I think that's actually correct. Not, not so. Therefore, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord is simply saying, I'm going to handle justice here. And, and this guy, Lamech, he totally misunderstands this. He says in verse 24, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. What Lamech is doing is he's emphasizing what a big, bad champion he is. That was not the Lord's point. The Lord's point was, I'm going to handle justice. I don't want anybody else to kill Cain. I'm going to do justice. And Lamech takes God's justice and he makes it about himself, illustrating Proverbs 28.5, which says, Evil men do not understand justice. But those who seek the Lord understand it fully. So this guy Lamech, he doesn't understand what God communicated. He's not interested in what God communicated. He's a murderer like Cain, his father. We want to be careful with God's word. We want to seek to understand God's word. We don't want to use God's word to just play into our impulses and our, our desires. And then the chapter concludes, look at verse 25. Adam knew his wife again. This is worded so similarly to 4.1 that it's evident that we're returning to, to, to that. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another seed, another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And again, it seems that she's looking for the one who will bring to realization Genesis 3.15. She's looking for the seed of the woman who's going to bruise the head of the serpent. And she explains, look, it can't be Abel because Cain killed him. And it's obviously not Cain because he's acting like the seed of the serpent. And then verse 26, to Seth also a son was born. And he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's as though Moses is, is concerned to show that the promise in Genesis 3.15 has resulted in faith for Adam and Eve. And Adam names his wife Eve because she's going to be the mother of all the living. And then they have this child in 4.1 and they're looking for the child of promise. 
That doesn't work out. They have another child in 425, and they're looking for the child of promise. So you see what they're doing. They're clinging to the word of God, and they're calling on the name of the Lord. And, and that phrase, call upon the name of the Lord, it, it really has two connotations. One of the connotations is they're crying out to him for help, for deliverance, for salvation. And another connotation is they're proclaiming his name. This, this is the expression used in Exodus 34, 6, and 7 when it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. And then the Lord announces his character to Moses. And so in one way, to call upon the name of the Lord is to announce the name of the Lord, even as it's also to say, Lord, help me. Lord, save me. Lord, change me. So we want to call upon the name of the Lord. We want to be those who are clinging to the word of God and who are calling upon the name of the Lord, both proclaiming who he is and crying out to him for help. Let me urge you to do this with these things. Let me urge you to proclaim the character of God in the way that you live, in the way that you talk to people. Let's, let's, let's be sure that as we invite people to our church, it's not about a political party. It's about Jesus. We want you to know God. That's what we want. And if you're going to stumble over our message, we want to be sure that it's the message of the gospel. It's the message of the Bible. It's, it's the message of God's love and God's mercy and God's holiness that's causing people to stumble. So let me urge you to proclaim God's character and then to call out, this Easter I'm praying for. You could write, this Easter I'm calling on the Lord to save. And then write that person's name. I was so encouraged last night um, to hear testimony of a guy that is here today because a member of our church invited him and kept inviting him. And he's here, and he got baptized here, and he believes because this happened. And then this morning, somebody says to me, you know why I came to this church? Because you invited me. That's why I came to this church. Let me urge you, urge you to make use of these things. We want to live out God's character. We want to call on the name of the Lord because we love him and because we love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's pray together. Father, you are so good to us. You are so worthy of our best efforts, so worthy of our best sacrifices. Father, I pray that by your Spirit, you would convict us in these moments of the ways that we are not bringing to you the firstborn of our flocks, the first fruits of our produce, the fat portions. Lord, convict us of our sin, of our disregard for you, of the contempt that our actions reveal that we have for you in our hearts. Lord, convict us. And Father, I pray that you would convict us of our lack of concern for our neighbors, our lack of concern for the people in our lives. Lord, convict us of being so self-centered that when we think of talking to another person, what we mainly think of is ourselves and not them and what they need. 
Father, we pray that you would make us our brother's keeper. And Lord, we pray this because we want your character to be seen. And we want people to know your amazing, merciful love. And so we pray, Father, that you would make it evident that we are disciples of Jesus because of the way that we love. And Father, we pray that you would make it so that we have no other gods before you. Make it so that we make no images that we worship instead of you. Lord, make it so that the the things of the world, the pleasures of this life, and the desires for other things. Lord, make it so that those things don't choke out the word, we pray. Renew in us the joy of our salvation, that we may be glad and rejoice in you all our days, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.